I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Colossians. And what I want to do this morning is I want to begin by, by telling you a story about a guy by the name of David Ayers. It's kind of an interesting story. It's a fun story. It's about victory. And this is the way it began. David Ayers, in February of 2020, uh, was sitting in the stands with his wife, enjoying a hockey game and uh, just watching the game. At 42 years of age and 15 years removed from a kidney transplant, his dreams of ever playing professional hockey were long gone. The closest that he ever got to playing professional hockey was in a semi-professional hockey rink, driving them the, the Zamboni. Um, that's the closest that he ever came. And serving as an emergency backup goalie. Now, an emergency backup goalie is is this. Uh, the Blues have two goalies, um, Bennington and Husson. And uh, so, Husso. So, if both of them were to get injured in a game, somewhere in the arena, there's a backup goalie that's going to jump in and they're going to take care of being a goalie. Well, that's what he did. But usually for him, it meant a free ticket to the game, a dinner, and a night out with his wife. Nothing really happens until this night. After the first goalie for the Carolina Hurricanes went down, uh, David left his uh, seat and went to the locker room and got half-dressed in his hockey gear. Then his phone began to blow up with messages. Another collision had happened, and that backup goalie, the second goalie, was injured, and he was going to have to come into the game. David's turn in the spotlight had just occurred. And this is what he said later. He said, I've been in this on this ice many times without fans. Put fans in the mix, and it's an entirely different game, obviously. But hey, once-in-a-lifetime experience, I'll take it. Things did not start out well. The first two shots he faced went right in the back of the net. But a teammate encouraged him, and he came up to him and said this, just have fun. We don't care if you let in 10 goals, just have fun. He said that was a turning point for the way that he played the game. He stopped the next eight shots to secure the win. The Carolina Hurricanes coach after the game said this, he just gave us an incredible memory. Think about that. David goes down at 42 years of age as a goalie, uh, the first goalie in history to win his debut. And this is what he said later after the game. I'd love to see somebody else in the league get the same opportunity. So would every fan. There was such a demand for him in this story that Upper Deck that creates cards, baseball cards, hockey cards, football cards. They created a hockey card for him, and they took his goalie stick to the NHL Hall of Fame. For the rest of his life, this guy probably played less than 10 minutes in a professional hockey game, and he can say, by the way, I'm in the Hall of Fame. I mean, talk about victory. Talk about a win. How incredible is that? An ordinary Joe sitting at 42 years of age gets invited to play in his first hockey game and he secures a win. I think it was six to three. That's the way that he won. This morning, we come to a text from the book of Colossians that says this, that you and I, we have victory in Jesus. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know how life has beaten you down. But you and I can have victory in who Jesus is And what he's done for us. It talks about, in verse 15, a triumphal procession. In other words, Jesus, because of who he is, his life, death, burial, and his resurrection from the grave, offers you and I this victory over sin, over all the yuckiness, all over the brokenness of life. So if we come in here broken today, we know that we can be alive in Jesus and we can have victory in our lives, no matter what's going on. That's where we're going to go today. Triumph in Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. 13 to 15. Let me just read the text for you. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writing to the people at Colossae, 1,300 miles away, he's writing to these people. And notice what he says. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive together with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us. And that stood opposed to us. He took it, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Paul's letter to these people at Colossae who were, who were struggling with adding all of these other things in life. You know, is Jesus really enough for my life? Or do I need to add all of these other things? Do I need to add this ritual? Or maybe I need to do this, or maybe I need to do that. And Paul's going to say, no. Christ has made you radically alive in Jesus. And because of that, we can trust him for every element of our life. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. And this morning, I simply ask that you'd open our minds and our hearts to the reality of who you are, what you've done for us, and how you have radically made us alive in Jesus. You've forgiven us of our sin. And one day, we will be with you in heaven. And all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the yuckiness of this life will be done away with because of Jesus' death on the cross. And we thank you for that. Father, open our eyes that we would see the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus is, our union with him and what he has done for us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So what Paul is going to do is he he gets ready to end this chapter. He's, he's going to focus on our, our union with Christ, how we are connected with Christ, how we are with him because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection, because of our faith and our trust in Jesus. And what he's going to talk about is this, that we're, we're, we're alive together in Christ. We've been forgiven of our sin. This debt, this debt of sin has been forgiven. It's been done away with. And not only that, he has disarmed all of the evil. He's disarmed the powers and the authorities that we don't necessarily see that are going on all around us. He's disarmed him because of the cross. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let's kind of walk through what does victory look like in this text? Number one, it means this. Victory means to be alive in Jesus. Look at verse 13 again. Let me just read. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave you of all of our sins. So, so what does it mean when Paul says when you're, when you're dead and your trespasses and sins? Listen, the word sin, it's not a very popular word, is it? I mean, we don't even like to talk about it in the church. We kind of stay away from it. What we like to focus on is the grace that we have in Jesus, but we don't want to talk about sin. It's such a, it's such an ugly word. It's such a radical word. It, it means that we've done some things wrong. It means in this text that we're dead to the spiritual realities that are all around us, that God has spiritual realities for us. There's something beyond what we see, feel, touch, and hear around us. There's something inside of us that longs to be connected on a different level. And sin means this, that we've missed God's mark. We have violated God's laws, God's decrees. We have crossed the line. We've overstepped the bounds. If we had, go back to Adam and Eve, what did they do? They, they overstepped their bounds. God said, you can only do this, but they overstepped their bounds and ultimately rebelled against God. There's this thing called sin, and we're sinners. And the Bible just reminds us that we are people separated from God because of our sin. You ever been around a room of two-year-olds for about a half hour? Go around a room of two-year-olds and you'll see what sin really is. You don't have to teach them to be bad. I didn't have to teach my kids to be bad. My mom and dad didn't have to teach me to be bad. I knew instinctively how to be bad. I rebelled against them constantly, constantly. In the Bible, listen, the Bible takes sin seriously. Whether we want to agree with the word or not, 
The Bible takes it very, very seriously. It talks about us what? It talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of our heart. What does it mean and look like to be dead? I came across this illustration from a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Now, Irwin, Dr. Erwin Lutzer is, a, is our author. He's a pastor for many, many years at Moody Bible Church in the Chicago area. Just a great guy on the radio. Most people would know he is, know the books that he wrote. And he has an interesting illustration of what he did with, with, with uh, future pastors, how he would teach them about this concept. And this is what he says. He would teach a preaching chorus at um, uh, Trinity Evangelical School, and every year he would take his students in his preaching class to a cemetery. He would take them to the cemetery, and then he would say, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to preach. This is what he said. I take them to a little cemetery in Deerfield, Illinois, and I have them gather around a certain gravesite. I point out to the name, and then I tell one of the students, preach the gospel to Mr. Smith. They look at me like I'm nuts. So I preached to Mr. Smith with enthusiasm. Sir, Jesus died for your sins, and you must put your faith and your trust in him. Then I look at the students, and I tell them, this is no different than preaching the gospel to unsaved people. The Bible says that they are dead in their sins. You can preach your heart out, but nothing will happen unless God does a miracle to give them the life to listen. Listen, the prognosis for sin is absolutely fatal. It separates us from a holy God. And the good news of the Bible is this, that God has redeemed us. He's done something. He's reminded us of the nature and the character, who he is and what he wants to do in our lives. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Notice how Paul describes this fatal disease called sin. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, sin through Adam and Eve came into this world. And death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men. Why? Because all sin. Listen, sin has messed up our lives. It has messed up our lives. We cannot understand and know the meaning and the purpose of who God is and what he wants because of this thing called sin that resides deep inside of us. We have rebelled against a holy God by saying, listen, I don't want to listen to you. I actually want to go and do my thing, my way. And by the way, are we any different nowadays? Do we always listen, fully obey, and trust Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us? Or do we have this idea that I'm going to take things in my own hands and I'm actually go and I'm going to do the things that I want to do? Rebelling against God is like rebelling against breathing in air and oxygen. You do that and you're going to die. We rebel against God. The Bible says this, that we will ultimately face death. For the wages of sin is death, is what the Bible says. Sin is a reason that life is unfulfilled for many people. If God created you, to love and honor and obey him and to be connected with him. If I rebel against him, how am I going to find that meaning and purpose in life? One man said this, it's the reason we're haunted by dreams we can't create, tortured by laws we can't keep, driven by goals we cannot reach. The word of God does not take a lot of time reminding us and telling us that we are sinners before a holy God. And the reality is we are broken people and we can look outside and see it. Can't you see brokenness all around us? Even within the church? Brokenness to rebel against who God is and what he would have for our lives and our own human hearts? Listen, the Bible says this. Sin destroys. Sin absolutely destroys. Psalm 33 was written by David. 
And, and, and in this psalm, in Psalm 32, I'm sorry, Psalm 32, David reminds us about the nature of sin and the ugliness of sin and how it lies deep within us and affects us in a powerful way. Psalm 32 says this, David, who experienced a lot of rebellion against God and sin, notice what he writes, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord must not take into account against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Notice what happens. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. It means pause. He pauses. Then I acknowledge my sin to you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of all of my sin. Pause. Did you hear how David described the heaviness and the weightiness of sin? The weight of our sin is heavy. It's heavy emotionally. It's heavy physically. It's heavy spiritually. Sin destroys us on the very inside of who we are and, and draws us away from all that God would want and have for us. Sin destroys us. And the Bible says this, you were at one time dead in your trespasses and sins. You know what the Bible, the beauty of the Bible is, is this, that God makes us alive together in him, that God transforms us, he changes us on the inside because he gives us victory because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We have victory in our lives because we have victory over sin. David, in this psalm, talks about what? My sins have been forgiven because of what God has done for us and sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Think about Paul, the guy who wrote this letter to the people of Colossae. Imagine having a conversation with him, and and you go up to him and you say, you know what? You hurt God's people. You never respected or honored Jesus in your life. In, In fact, you blasphemed him. How could you become the world's greatest missionary and the author of half the New Testament? Maybe he would stop, bow his head, and maybe he would sing these songs. This song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt and all my pride. There was a man who called himself the chief of sinners but recognized sin in his own life and came to an understanding that he had been forgiven of his sin. What about Peter? I mean, think about Peter, arrogant, prideful, boastful, going out and and just leading the way and many times going in an opposite direction, saying things that he really didn't know what he was saying. Imagine having a conversation with Peter that went something like this. You were inconsistent. You were prideful. You were a fisherman. You smelled of hard work, fish, and you denied Jesus. How could you become one of the most respected and loved people in all Christendom? And maybe Peter would bow his head, bow his heart and say this. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me. I'm a sinner condemned and unclean. By the way, that's what he said in Luke chapter 5. But how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. David, Paul, and Peter recognized their sin, confessed their sin, and came to Jesus, and Jesus gave them victory over life. 
Listen, a lot of people think that, well, you know, I, I, I want to embrace Jesus. I want to put my faith, my confidence, my trust in Jesus because I want to go to heaven. In other words, it's kind of like fire insurance. You know, I want to make sure that my sin is, is covered so that when I leave here, I'm going to go and spend eternity in heaven. But they don't want to deal with the reality that Jesus gives us victory in all other areas of our life, that he wants us to live for him because he wants to change us and transform us on the inside. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel says I change and transform your heart, your mind, and your soul, the inclinations of your heart. I cleanse you so that you are an entirely different person. To be alive in Christ means this, that God has changed you radically on the inside. We couldn't do it in and of ourselves. God needs to radically change us, transform our heart and minds and soul, and make us alive in Jesus. There's a parallel book to the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, notice how it describes God's word. Notice how it describes what we were in Christ. It says this, but because of his great love for us, if you don't know anything this morning, I want you to know something. God loves you so much that Jesus went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for my sin. All the rebellion in my mind, in my heart, Because of his great mercy, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved by faith. The message of the gospel, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, by putting my faith in who he is and what he's done for us, what's happened? My life is radically transformed. And God, because he's rich in mercy, because he's full of love, trans, uh, transforms me on the inside and makes me what the Bible says, a new creation in Christ. That's what he does. That's what it means to be alive in Jesus, to know that what he's done for us. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it gives us a great description of what regeneration, of what being transformed looks like. It says this, but when the kindness And the love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. There is nothing that I can physically do to earn my salvation before a holy God, which frees me up to live for him and to look to him and to trust him for who he is and what he's done. He saved us, what? Through the washing, um, rebirth, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes alongside of us and convicts us of our sin, opens our minds and our hearts to the reality of who God is and changes us on the inside and gives us an entirely different inclination for life. That's why salvation is so incredibly radical. And you see the transformation. The old things passed away. What? Behold, new things have come. So what does it mean to be Alive in Jesus. I think it means a couple of things. To be alive in Christ confronts the theory of evolution, doesn't it? It means we're just biology. We're just here. We're just products of biology. And we're products that that we can't really change because we're all just a products of all the things that are inside of us. To, to, To be alive in Christ means there's another dimension to our lives. There's a spiritual dimension to our lives. That I am dead in my sin. And then I can be awakened to spiritual realities because of the Spirit of God. To be alive in Christ means this, that that I've been created. Every person, every person has been created in the very image of God, and they, they have the image of God marked upon them. And every person, old, 
Young, male, female, doesn't matter where you are. Every person is created in the very image of God and every person has value in life. Unborn to the nth elderly people. Every one of us have value. And that's what it means to be alive in Christ. We're alive to spiritual realities beyond this dimension. God has given us the message of life. If people are dead in their trespasses and sins, if many people that we come in contact with, maybe our neighbors, maybe our family members, maybe a coworker, if they're dead in their trespasses and sins, and you and I are made alive in Christ, then we have the opportunity, the responsibility to want to give them the message of Jesus. To tell them that they need to embrace this message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Be alive in Jesus means this, that I'm going to find a future in heaven with him. And I'm going to be reunited with all of my family and friends and all of those who've gone before us who put their faith and their trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be alive in Christ. And what it should do, it should radically affect the way that you and I live. You're not dead. The creator, the spirit of God lives inside of you. And you are mighty and you are powerful. And by the way, he has given us victory over this world. You may look out and see all of the things going on and all the trials and all the troubles. And yet God says, listen, I've given you victory and who Jesus is and what he's done. Well, Paul wants the people of Colossae to remember that they are spiritually alive in Jesus because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can live in victory because of that. Second thing that Paul mentions is this. Because of sin, because of the ugliness of the world, because of the brokenness, we are broken people. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with sin before. Ever dealt with it in the sense of coming before God, recognizing that God is a holy, perfect, just God, and that I have violated principles against him, and come to an understanding of, wow, I need to get my life straight. I've done some things to offend a holy God. I need to be forgiven. That's the second dimension that Paul deals with here. Look at verse 13 of 14. He says this in verse 13, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. You know what the word forgive means? It means this. It means grace. It means grace. It means you and I have been graciously given grace in the unique person of Jesus Christ. We have been generously given grace. We've graciously, in kindness and love, God has given us grace. He's withhold that the penalty. He's withhold this idea that I need to pay for my sin, that he could send me into eternity without him. He said, listen, I'm going to give you grace, and that grace comes in the form of Jesus Christ. Will you look to him, and will you trust him for who he is? And a lot of people can't get beyond this idea that I need to be forgiven of my sin. I told you I was, I was reading a book um, by a, a hospice chaplain called uh, The Three Regrets. And The Three Regrets of the book, I've, I've read the book, The Three Regrets are, she's a hospice chaplain. And what she does is she talks to people in the last year, six months of their life. And as she began to talk to, for 20 years, all of these people who've gone before them and passed away. She began to think through and categorize the, the regrets that people have. Regret number one, not living according to a purpose. In other words, they had dreams focused. Second regret is this. They didn't love the way that they should have. And the third thing is this. They didn't forgive. They didn't forgive. They didn't understand forgiveness, knowing that they could be forgiven, and they in, in, in turn did not forgive other people for what they've done. 
How sad. People get to the end of their life, getting ready to cross into that threshold of eternity and still bearing the burden and the scars of suffering as, as a product of their sin and the decisions that they've made. Listen, hurt, pain, suffering, rebellion, that's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. And all of that weighs upon our lives physically, Psalm 32, emotionally, spiritually. It is like an anchor upon us. And if we don't deal with it, we can destroy our inward selves. I got a text this week, not from anyone of this church, this week. And this is what the text said. I want you to know I'm trying hard to put this shame and guilt behind me. But so far, it is just tough. But I am really trying. That probably could have been written by somebody from our own church. The weightiness and the heaviness of sin and rebellion and the yuckiness of our lives, it's huge and it weighs us down. And sometimes we don't know what to do with it. And sometimes we can't understand what God has done for us and we hang on to this stuff. Maybe there's a former relationship, something in the past, and, and you're living in the past in such a way that that former relationship that you don't have anything to do with could have been 10 years ago, could have been 15 years ago. It's still there rearing its ugly head. And, and that relationship from 10 years ago is still haunting you today. Or, or maybe there's a past decision. Maybe you weren't even a Christian. Or maybe you were a Christian and, and you've made this decision and, and it just, it just continues to bother you. And it's like there's this huge weight upon yourself. And people come to the conclusion, well, I'm just going to have to live with it for the rest of my life. No. No. You and I can have victory in Jesus. Notice what it says. He forgave us all of our sins. Colossians 2, verse 15, 14 says this. He's forgiven us all of our sins. He's canceled all of our debt. Christ has done away with nailing it to the cross. That is God's pardon program for sin. And not just the small sins, not just the sins that we think are significant, but notice what it says, all of our sins. As far as east is from the west, he wants to remove that sin from us. He wants to strip us of our hanging on to all of that stuff and recognize and realize that we at the cross have been forgiven in Jesus. That all the yuckiness of my life prior to Jesus, all the yuckiness of my life since coming to Jesus, my heart, my thoughts, the way that I've treated people. God says, listen, I want to I wipe all of that out. And it's going to be nailed to the cross. All of those charges against me, well, Clint, you're this. Well, Clint, you realize you're this. Well, Clint, you're not a really good person. Well, Clint, you're not very patient at times. Clint, you're just an egghead sometimes. All of that is nailed to the cross. It's nailed to the cross of Jesus because that's why Jesus went to the cross. And remember what Jesus said when he was on the cross? It is finished. What is finished? The payment for my sin. The penalty for my sin is taken care of in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it means all debts. All debts have been forgiven. That should resonate deep within our hearts. So there's a guy by the name of John Artwork. He's written a couple of books, and, and he, he's just got a great illustration here, and I, I want to give it to you. It, it gives us a great picture of what it looks like to have our debt forgiven. So he says, uh, my family was in Azusa, California, uh, because one of my kids was graduating from Azusa Pacific University. My wife, Nancy, 
uh, was going to speak at the commencement ceremony. So she and I and a gathering of about 50 other people had invited to a special gathering. And uh, these are people who had been a part of the graduating class some 50 years uh, prior to this and uh, a few faculty members. Well, during the gathering, John Wallace, who was the president of Azusa Pacific University, brought out three students who were graduating and told that for the next two years, they were going to the poorest of poor in India. These three students thought they were just going to be commissioned and prayed for and sent out with a blessing, and and they were. But then uh, something happened that they didn't know was going to happen. John turned to them and said, I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor, who has been so moved by what you are doing that he's given the gift to this university in your name, on your behalf. And so John turned to the first student and he said this, you are forgiven your debt of $105,000. The kid immediately begins to cry. John turns to the next student and says, you're forgiven your debt of $70,000. And he turns to the third student and says, you are forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students had no idea what was coming. They had just been ambushed by grace, blown away that somebody they don't even know would pay their debt. He said the whole room was in tears. Isn't that a picture of what it means for you and I to be forgiven of this debt, this written code, the weightiness of sin? It's wiped clean. It's absolutely wiped away. Jesus said, I've I've forgiven you because of the cross, and I'm going to wipe away all of your sin. And that's why Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful picture of debt being released in our lives. There's a song that uh, some of us are probably familiar with. Let me just give you the words. I'll put them on the screen. You may know the words to the song. He paid the debt he did not owe. I owed the debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace All Day Long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. We have been given victory over sin. We've made alive in Christ. And we have a victory over sin because of who Jesus is in the life, death, burial, and resurrection. And by the way, there's a flip side of this. And the flip side of this is this. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to forgive other people when they hurt and harm us. We have been given the incredible privilege of knowing that we have been forgiven of our sin. And because we have been given much, we have a responsibility not to harbor hate not to harbor all of this yuckiness, not to withhold grace in other people's lives, but we have the great privilege of forgiving other people. Listen, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. You don't think forgiveness is important? Notice what Jesus said. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. There is a relationship between the idea of forgiveness. My relationship with God and the way that I forgive other people bears upon my relationship with God and how I respond to other people. There's this connectedness in our hearts to other people and the subject and the idea of forgiveness of sin. Because of what Christ has done in my life, I now have the capacity to forgive other people. So this book that I'm reading the three regrets in the, in the chapter on forgiveness. She quotes Martin Luther King Jr. And this is what, this is what she writes. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. 
He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. By the way, Jesus called us, what, to love our enemies. We're called to love our enemies. How can we withhold forgiveness when you and I have been forgiven much and we have the responsibility to forgive other people? Consider the implications of not forgiving other people. They're huge. The the Bible talks in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, about giving the devil a stronghold in your life. If I harbor sin, if I harbor this idea of unforgiveness, I'm I'm, I'm opening the door for Satan to come in and to affect me in a mighty and a powerful way. All of a sudden, that that battleground that's out there becomes my battleground on the inside as I begin to, to harbor things in my heart. And if we're not careful, what happens? This root of bitterness begins to, to take hold in our life. And not only do I become bitter, because then, then my heart becomes hardened to the realities of who God is and what he's done for us. And the reality is I'm not hurting other people. I'm simply hurting myself by harboring this idea of, of sin in my life and a lack of forgiveness in other people. That's the implications of hanging on to and holding on to this pattern of unforgiveness. Paul says, listen, people at Colossae, I want you to be unified. I want you to be loving, caring community toward each other. And in Colossians chapter 3, he's going to write future. He's going to write how he wants them to respond. Let me just read ahead. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 or verse 11 says this. Here, the body of Christ, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. It's all about Jesus and who he is. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all, put on these virtues. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. That's the way he wants us to respond, to be forgiving of other people as, as Christ has forgiven us. We just sang the song, I raise a hallelujah, talks about victory in Jesus. I raise a hallelujah. Sing a little louder. Sing a little louder. Sing a little louder. Why? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the victory that we have in Jesus. And we're to be transformed because of that. Remember the song, Let It Be Said of Us? Let me just, I won't sing it because I'm not a good singer, but here are the lyrics. I'll put them on the screen. Let it be said of us, we were marked by forgiveness. We were known by our love and delighted in mercy. We were ruled by his peace, heeding unity's call, joined as one body that Christ would be seen in all. I love that phrase. We were what? We were marked by forgiveness. And that becomes the unity in which you and I are to build on. One last quote before I leave this. A woman by the name of Chris Ponder wrote this. She said, when you hold resentment toward another, you are bound to that person or condition by an emotional link that is stronger than steel. Forgiveness is the only way to dissolve that link and set free. The Bible reminds us because we are alive in Christ, we have the capacity to forgive other people because we recognize what God has done for us and we recognize the depth of our own sin and what we have done. We have the capacity to forgive other people. In Jesus, we can do that. We're alive to Christ. We're forgiving other people. And the last thing is we have victory. Victory over evil. Look at verse 15. 
Speaking of Jesus, having disarmed, that means stripped. By the way, when Jesus was on the cross, wasn't he stripped? What was he stripped of? Clothes? Everything? His humanity? Wasn't he stripped? Naked? For the whole world to see God on the flesh? Stripped? And having disarmed, stripped the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Listen, if you go and you look at the Gospels and you look at Jesus' life, there's a, there's a pattern, there's a story running through it. And as Jesus was going to the cross, every form of evil and its most potent concentration came rushing at him. Rules and authorities, political, religious, demonic. They banded together to strip Jesus naked, hold him up to public contempt, spit on him, mock him, haul him away, and kill him, thus permanently and fully triumphing over him at one time, thinking they killed him and who he is in his death on the cross. For Jesus, it was an incredible time of weakness, humility, and shame. But for us, it was a time of victory. Why? Because Jesus, three days later, came back. And he was resurrected to life. And he disarmed. He made a public spectacle of all that was against him and who he is. What we have in verse 15 is a picture of victory. In Rome, what they would do, they they would go in and they would conquer a nation. And then they would have, or they would parade all of the people in. They might parade all of the the leaders that would come in, and all of the spoils that would come in. And and then the soldiers would come in. And last, the, the, the victory, the general would come in. He would come in last, and he would be proclaiming victory over this nation. And that's what we have where we have a picture of victory. Because Jesus has gone to the cross. And in that moment of death on the cross and the resurrection, he has stripped away all of the power. By the way, the Bible talks about victory. Go back and read in, in, in Psalms, and like when, when they give tribute to God for victory, it says this, victory didn't come because of the horse or the rider. Victory came of became because of what God... Go back and read Joshua and Judges. Over and over, it says God delivered the people. And now we have in the in the book of Colossians, God delivering his people from sin. What? Because of life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What more could you want? Forgiven of our sin? The capacity to forgive other people, the hurt, the pain, the suffering? Is Christ enough? That's what Paul's writing about. He's saying, is, is, is it enough? Is it enough? I want to close with this illustration, then I'll be done. Located on 9th Street in New York City, B&H Photo is the largest non-chain photo and video equipment store in the United States and second largest in the world only to Yodobashi Camera in downtown Tokyo, which is bigger. The owners, along with their many employees, are Hasidic Jews who dress and their 18th century ancestors, as their 18th century ancestors did in Eastern Europe. On any given day, eight to 9,000 people pass through their front door, yet 70% of their business is online, serviced by a 200,000-square-foot warehouse located nearby in Brooklyn. Even in a competitive marketplace, B&H won't conduct business on the Sabbath or on about another half-dozen Jewish holidays. They close their doors at 1 p.m. on Friday and keep them closed all day Saturday, the biggest shopping day of the week. During Sabbath, customers can peruse the B&H website, but they can't make an online order. 
Recently, a customer asked the B&H Director of Communications how they could close not just the retail store, but also their website on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, the busiest shopping day of the year. And this is what the man said. The director simply replied, we respond to a higher authority. We respond to a higher authority. That is the essence of what we're talking about here. Do you and I respond to a higher authority, higher than the governments out there, higher than all of the stuff that we're seeing, all of the message that you and I are being martyred with, do this, do this, do this. You and I respond to a higher authority, and his name is King Jesus, and he went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can live entirely different people, different ways. And we, you and I are alive in Jesus because of that. Isn't that awesome? That's worth, a, that's worth coming here on a Sunday morning, I think. Be reminded of what Jesus has done for our lives. If you've not responded to Jesus, I would just ask that you consider the claims of Christ. Jesus, life, death, burial, resurrection, humiliated on the cross, went to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin so that we might have a new way of thinking, a new way of, of living, a spiritual dimension to our lives. And he wants to come and live inside of us. Nothing gets more powerful than that. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the way that you transform us. I thank you for the way that you change us. Father, I pray that you would just remind us that we are alive in Christ, that the Spirit of God lives inside of us, that you have ultimately given us victory in life. And Father, we have the capacity to forgive. Father, I I know that there's a lot of people in this room that have been wounded and hurt in a deep and mighty and powerful way. The weight of the sin of this world is huge. And Father, I pray that if anyone is struggling with this idea of forgiving someone else or being forgiven, God, that you would remind them that as David experienced the blessedness of being forgiven of a sin, you too can wipe away our sin as far as east is from the west. The Bible is a record of people who sinned and rebelled against you and yet ultimately found forgiveness. Father, I pray that we would experience what it means to be alive in Jesus. That's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.